Welcome to the Freedom to Rise podcast, a production of United Way Suncoast. Here's your host, Chief Impact Officer, Emery Ivory. In 2021, Tampa Bay experienced the highest rent increase of any metro area in the nation at 24%. Manatee County has an estimated workforce housing shortage of 14,000 units. Sarasota County has seen the median rental average rise from about $1,500 a month in 2020 to more than 2,000 in 2022. The availability of affordable and workforce housing in the five county region served by United Way Suncoast continues to be in short supply. And the pandemic created an eviction crisis that continues to ripple through all of our communities. On this episode of the Freedom to Rise podcast, we'll explore these issues with the University of South Florida professor, and then I'll close out with the podcast with some specific thoughts about the power of dialogue. But first, let me welcome our guest. She's an associate professor in the University of South Florida School of Public Affairs. She previously served as the director of USF's Office of Community Engagement and Partnerships. She's written extensively about urban development and affordable housing and led a study of affordable housing issues in Dunedin and Sulphur Springs. She is also someone whose thought leadership we have relied on for our eviction mitigation initiative. Dr. Elizabeth Strong, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Freedom to Rise podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So before we tackle some of the issues surrounding housing, uh, I wanted to ask about something I saw in your bio. And it says that you obsess about baseball. Your expertise is in housing. Our Tampa Bay Rays are seeking a new home. So can you talk a little bit about your love of basketball and your thoughts about the Rays? So, yeah. So uh, you mean uh, baseball, I assume. The Rays Rays are uh, definitely uh, close to my heart. So, yeah, I I guess my heart says that I love that team and I want it to stay in the Tampa Bay area. And I really hope it does. My head says as someone who understands a bit about urban policy and how we set priorities, when I hear about um, the team asking for public support to the tune of some $500 million or $400 million, I do wonder whether we should be prioritizing giving subsidies to a privately owned baseball team. So I don't know where I land on this with my head and heart going in opposite directions. It's interesting. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. (laughs) So you helped lead a needs assessment of affordable uh, housing in Dunedin and Sulphur Springs. Uh, And these are very different communities. So can you share with us what you learned from these two studies? Well, of course, that's such a great question, Emery, because it does start us off talking about how diverse housing needs are. Then in a way, we talk sometimes about a housing crisis, but it's really housing crises that may manifest Mm -hmm. themselves differently in different places. So Sulphur Springs, at the time I was looking at it, is a neighborhood that certainly has a core of very hardworking homeowners but it also has a lot of properties that are uh, rental properties. These are Mm -hmm. not multifamily, but rather single family homes or duplexes that are owned by people who don't live in a neighborhood and rent it out. And the owners may not care a lot about the upkeep of those homes. And so housing quality is a big issue there. There's a lot of very poor quality housing in Sulphur Springs and figuring out how how to improve that, but maintain affordability is a challenge. Dunedin, of course, is quite different. 
housing quality is very high there. Um, and they are grappling with all the people who want to live by the water and near that great downtown um, mm-hmm. and how to accommodate those folks and still be able to have housing affordable to longer term residents. And I think they've done a very good job of having you know, townhomes and, and other kind of denser developments near the central area that uh, is a, a way to start accommodating new people who want to live in Dunedin, but still keep housing somewhat affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, as, you, as you know, we we operate a, a resource center in Sulphur Springs. Uh, we have case managers mm-hmm. and an attorney that also works out of that center. And, you know, one of the biggest issues that we see from folks who visit the center are related to tenant landlord issues and, you know, folks who are behind in their rent needing rental assistance. So interesting. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about housing and COVID-19, as you know, created some serious challenges for many community members, forcing many of them to fall behind on their rent. So how do you think our government at at all levels responded to the threat of evictions during the early parts of the pandemic? And how successful do you think they were? Well, I know this may sound... um Difficult to hear for people who personally struggled during this time, but I have to say that government at all levels actually did quite a remarkable job in um, taking this very difficult situation of COVID-19 and loss of employment and having it not become a catastrophe in the housing market. I know things Mm -hmm. are, are hard, but if you think about that period of April through July or August of 2020, when so many people were out of work, it could have been just such a catastrophe to have people evicted in the middle of a pandemic pre-vaccine. Yeah. And so a number of things happened to prevent that from happening. And I should say also it happened with the guidance of both political parties. So it was Governor Ron DeSantis who created a state moratorium on evictions that very effectively kept people from the final stage of eviction up until, say, August 2020. And then by September, the federal moratorium, a less effective one, took over. We also then had rental assistance coming from the federal government, even under the Trump administration, starting in late 2020. And so that has been a a lifesaver for many people who fell behind in rent. I also want to credit our local government. So the federal program for rental assistance created grants to the state and also to our counties and and, uh, municipalities to provide rental assistance to people in need. And our local governments had to stand up a program from zero to 60 Mm -hmm. in a couple of months, complicated programs with complicated requirements requiring, you know, very sophisticated technologies to deal with applications, new hiring, community Mm -hmm. outreach. And I think they did a remarkable job. Now, I know that there are going to be people who said they had trouble getting through, but the fact is that many of our local governments spent all of their resources from the first wave sort of tranche of emergency rental assistance, and many other governments did not. So I want to give them credit for responding well to that emergency situation. And I would say, if I could just go a step farther, that seeing how well we did with the moratoriums and then with rental assistance shows us that government can indeed provide an important safety net. That, mm-hmm. And I hope we will learn that lesson going forward because we may slowly crawl out of the pandemic, although we never know when. But these sorts of housing emergencies occur all the time. And it is so costly, both emotionally and financially, for an eviction to take place. It's hard on the tenant. It's hard on the landlord. And if we can infuse um, a few months rent into an emergency situation to prevent the eviction, that ends up being win-win for the landlord, for the tenant, for the community. Mm -hmm. That's great. 
So just to pick up on that, is there, just moving forward, have any thoughts about maybe what nonprofit organizations like ours and government can do to, you know, to address a lot of the, the affordable housing and eviction issues moving forward from this point? Sure. So I think thinking now just on the sort of landlord-tenant and eviction side, as opposed to, let's say, the housing development side, mm-hmm. which is a, a different question, then I think we've seen some effective eviction diversion programs, like Pinellas County has an eviction diversion program, where we bring together social service agencies, the courts, legal services, government aid. And so we are kind of addressing holistically what happens to people on the precipice of eviction, rather than waiting for them to get kicked out of their homes. When they become homeless, then there are services that may be available to them. But that's such a terrible time to intervene. We really want to intervene sooner to prevent the homelessness. And Mm -hmm. I think we've learned that can be done. So economists and some bankers like the husband of our United Way Suncoast CEO say if you look at cities like San Francisco and New York, there's evidence that rent control can lead to unintended consequences and create greater gentrification. But then we have our state representative, Victor Torres, who's championing a bill that would make rent control an available tool to local governments. People are struggling and we need to help, Torres told ABC Action News. So what do you think? I think it's complicated. Is that a good enough answer? Or I I need to say more. (laughs) So I think it's complicated for a few reasons. First of all, um, it's absolutely true uh, what you said that that um, people who are involved in the property market and economists do not like rent control. They think that discourages landlords from investing and that you know it ends it ends up with having a more restricted housing supply. It encourages landlords who own rental housing to convert to ownership or condominium to get kind of out from under those those uh, rental restrictions. But I think that there are also studies that suggest that in some cases, rent control has helped tenants stay in place longer at affordable rents. So for example, those San Francisco studies, they do say it can help foster gentrification, but they also, also say that at the same time, so it means in San Francisco, if you're moving into San Francisco, you're gonna find very expensive housing. But it does protect people who've lived there a long time, who can stay in place. And the average length of tenancy there under rent control is longer than what we're used to seeing here in Florida because people do not get pushed out by higher rents. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, And I also think that um, a lot of the studies are looking at places like New York or San Francisco that have rent control for a decade or more where it starts to have real consequences for housing development. But The people talking about rent control in Florida are more saying we have this very dramatic bottleneck in the housing market that may be COVID related. We need to increase supply, but we don't have that yet. And so can't we put the brakes on rent increases beyond a certain amount for a period of time, a year or two (laughs) years? And if you have, you know, a one-year rent control or rent stabilization sort of program, it's not clear to me that's going to create a situation where landlords make completely different choices about how they invest in their property. Mm -hmm. So I feel like some of those studies may not be germane. But I would also say that uh, at the same time that when I see cities like St. Pete uh, talking about investigating rent control, I mean, I'm glad they're looking into it because we should look into everything that they may be underestimating how hard it's going to be to implement in Florida. It's, uh, I know um, Senator Torres is submitting a bill suggesting that the current limit on rent control being just for one year would be lifted. But there's a lot of other things in the state statute that are unclear, that would be hard to get around. You need to have a referendum. 
There's the, mm-hmm. the state re- statute doesn't define what an emergency is. They exempt luxury housing, but they don't define luxury housing. So I feel like there's a lot we'd have to look at legally. I also think that people who advocate rent control don't realize just how heavy a lift it is for local governments. You need to have every landlord register so that you know what the rents are to start with. Mm. Um, You need to have an office that investigates complaints. You need to have a study of, you know, sort of rental rates and that kind of thing. And so I think that's hard to do. And I also think a lot of people would be left out because so many of our tenants are month to month or don't have a lease. And I don't see how rent control would help them because we don't really have kind of yeah. a, a baseline for what the rents are. So so yeah. it's complicated. Yeah. So but to to address the affordability issues, maybe should, should we, for example, discourage building uh, luxury housing? You know, do million dollar condos make it harder for working class people to find homes? I mean, certainly, I think most of us who care about affordability may look at all the luxury buildings going up and feel sort of dismayed. But Mm -hmm. I have to say, you know, housing is a good like any other good, that if you have a tighter supply, it gets more expensive. And if you have more of it, then Mm -hmm. it gets cheaper. So those million dollar condos may not reassure many people that affordability is, you know, a goal of the community. But I still think the more housing is better and that there is some trickle down effect and that the people who move into the million dollar condo may have left a $500,000 condo, which is then occupied by someone leaving a $250,000 condo. And somehow at the end of that chain, it frees up a less uh, expensive unit for someone else. So we can't only build million dollar condos and we have to mm-hmm. make sure it's not the only thing being built, but we shouldn't discourage it either. And, you know, you and I talked earlier about, you know, sort of our our issue with transportation as well. Uh, and I think you mentioned that while it can help, it, it, it really, for those folks who need to work, get to the urban core, it still makes it very, very difficult for them to rely on public transportation because of how long it takes, so on and so forth. But it still seems like transportation system, a regional transportation system could help some families. It absolutely could. There's some good research done about the cost of owning a car. You know, it's it costs you maybe ten or fifteen thousand dollars a year to own a car. And so, if a family can lose the car or maybe go from two cars to one car, they have just already increased the affordability of their living situation. So that's mm-hmm. definitely true. And I think it's important that we keep transportation in mind when we're planning for affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Great. So. Another question is, why do you think it's important to have communities that really include a range of housing options, uh, you know, rather than concentrations of wealth and poverty? And then coupled with that, you know, what do you say to people who wonder if families from different social economic backgrounds uh, can live next to each other? Sure. Yeah, that's such a good question. I think you know, we, um, it's clear to us or many of us why areas of concentrated poverty are problematic. They can be areas of high crime. They often can't support the kinds of commercial amenities that are important. You know, you have food deserts because the grocery stores don't want to come there. Areas of high poverty are going to not be attractive areas for investments of many kinds. You know, schools are likely to lag for various reasons, but maybe we think less about why having sort of uh, concentrations of only wealthy people are problematic because mm-hmm. you need a labor force. You need someone who's going to yeah. be a school teacher. You need someone who's going to be a service worker. And so if no one in the, those income ranges can live in your community, it's going to stagnate economically as well. 
because we need a diversity of, of workers and skill levels for a rich and full community. Um, and so I think we all benefit when we have some degree of economic integration. And as for can we convince people to uh, to do that, they do it. I mean, the thing is mm-hmm. that we sort of have, we sort of imagine that this kind of American model of the segregated region is some kind of norm that we all naturally fall into, and you need some kind of huge you know, social pressure to orchestrate people to live in other ways. But you can go all around the world and see communities that are not segregated in that way. I mean, many European cities have a great deal of economic integration. That's just how cities were built. And even, you know, if you go back in time in in, uh, the United States, before we had cars, people sort of had to live near each other. It's not saying they lived happily near each other, but I think it happens. And I think that um, if it happens in well-designed communities with good public services, and people are sending their kids to the same public schools and the same little league, then those barriers break down. So in the end, uh, what do you, think needs to happen for us to emerge with a tangible solutions to this crisis? Well, I think we need to have all options on the table. I sometimes see people sort of saying, no, we need um, more affordable housing. No, we need more housing altogether, but we, we need all of it. So I think we need to have look carefully at how we can build more housing. And um, But I think that we can't do that where we forget some of the other priorities we have, for instance, making our region more resilient. And so we want to build a lot more housing, but we don't want to build housing where we're putting people in harm's way. So we're not looking to build more right on the coasts, right on the bay. We don't want to fill in wetlands because we need them. But there are plenty of places in the Tampa Bay region that could be denser, that could be built up, that are are, uh, environmentally vulnerable. And so I think we need to look hard at that. That may mean that we have more areas that have townhomes and apartments and not only single family homes, but we just need to find ways to build more in sustainable ways. So that's definitely very important. We also need to find ways to subsidize people who will not, based on their own incomes, be able to flourish in the housing market as, as it's constituted right now. I mean, if you're making you know, $10 an hour, you cannot afford the rents in this area. And so, and that's not because you're a bad person. That's not because you're not trying. That's simply a fact. Mm -hmm. And so we need to make sure that there are subsidies involved for people like that. And that includes subsidies that maybe help people to buy a home if that's something they want to do, but also Mm -hmm. make sure that there are places where those who need to rent or prefer to rent can have secure and good quality rentals. Um, It shouldn't be that you have to be a homeowner just to have a decent place to live. So I think those things are all true and we need to consider all of those options. Also, if I could just add one thing, I just want to also say how how pleased I am to have been able to work with you because I think that you at United Way have been involved in looking at a lot of these different things, including how to deal with tenant vulnerability, but then also how to to look at housing, you know, more broadly in terms of where we can put our efforts. So I think that kind of creative thinking really makes a difference. Well, thank you. And you know, I also have to say that you have been a great resource and a, for us uh, and certainly a source of a lot of data and information that has helped inform our work, especially during this uh, eviction crisis. So thank you as well. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you about this topic. Just And thank you for taking time out of, I know you're, you have a very, very busy schedule. So thanks for joining us, joining us with this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Coming up, I will give my big takeaway, but first here's an important message. 
every step forward transforms into something bigger. United Way Suncoast multiplies our community impact, creating powerful outcomes that individuals need to thrive. With every donation, every volunteer hour, and every advocate, United Way Suncoast creates opportunities today, transforms lives tomorrow, and builds a more equitable future for generations to come. United We Rise. United We Win. Welcome back. At United Way Suncoast, we've devoted $3 million to creating an eviction mitigation plan that includes funding of housing and rental assistance navigators through our strategic community partner agencies who are working closely with our legal aid providers. This is undoubtedly a significant commitment, and we're seeing that it's making a real difference. Yet, there is another aspect of our work that deserves attention, regional planning and information sharing to increase access to resources to help struggling families. You might think that this sounds like a bunch of talk, but time and time again, we've seen where dialogue and communication can create solutions. Led by Doug Griesenauer, our Director of Workforce Development and Financial Stability, we've convened different municipal workers from Sarasota, Manatee, Pinellas, and Hillsboro to talk about the complexities of emergency rental assistance funds. They're sharing best practices, addressing challenges, and exploring ways that they can continue to coordinate efforts to better serve our community. Doug reports that these conversations is leading to real change in improving the system set up to help people facing eviction. We take a lot of pride at United Way Suncoast in serving the community as a convener. Sometimes the best way to create lasting impact involves bringing together key stakeholders and turning ideas into initiatives. They say talk is cheap, but talk is backed by energy and effort can prove invaluable. At United Way Suncoast, we've watched such collective will lift up community members for nearly 100 years. That's why we know United We Rise, United We Win. 